Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that were before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is this prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Hey, One Fellowship family and friends, it is so good to be with you. For those that don't know, my name is Drew Hensley. I'm the pastor of Discipleship, and today we are starting Holy Week, what's known as Palm Sunday, that we look at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that before we get to Good Friday and Easter, we look at Jesus entering into the city and being welcomed. And as we do that, what we're going to see is that there was a dilemma that the people had that welcomed Jesus into the city. Um, as we reflect on this entry, the people that would welcome him would be faced with a question. And it's the same one that we're going to ask ourselves today. And that's this. What kind of king did you expect? I don't know about you, but I'm sort of a sucker for articles on the Internet I end up clicking around and sometimes I'll find myself 30 minutes into an article that I probably shouldn't be 30 minutes into. And that happened with this article that came out of Ireland. There was this farmer and he had this um, large farm and he went out to one of the barns one night to check on his milking cows. And as he enters into this barn and it's dark, he looks over and he sees that a tiger is laying on its side in the barn. And so obviously he starts to panic and he runs back to his house and he phones the local authorities and, and he tells them, there's this tiger in my barn, I need you to come out, I need you to do something. And the authorities, they don't believe him, but the man persists and he, he assures them that this is true, that he's not making this up. And so they come out and uh, they call other people in the community and there's firemen and there's policemen and they're surrounding this man's farm. This is escalating so quickly. And finally, after trying to coax this tiger out, there's no response. They're not sure what to do. And finally, someone from animal control, they enter into this barn. And after just a few minutes, the person from animal control comes out of the barn holding this giant stuffed tiger. You see, the man's son, he had won this stuffed animal at a fair, and he had accidentally left it in the barn. 
And what the farmer hadn't realized in the dark was that this was simply a stuffed animal. It wasn't a real tiger, but people were coming from all over town because they knew that something big was happening because this escalated so quickly. If Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is so well received and celebrated on Palm Sunday, what went wrong less than a week later? How did things escalate so quickly? Why did the crowds who adored Jesus on Sunday turn on him by Friday of that week? Before we get into our passage today, what I want to do is just pray for our time together. So if you join me, Jesus, we thank you that you are the word, that you are the truth, that you are the life. And we pray today on Palm Sunday that as we're gathered virtually God, that you would speak to us through the power of your word, that you would transform our hearts, and that you would draw us closer to yourself. And so, Jesus, we pray all of these things in your name. Amen. All right, so let's jump into Matthew 21. It's the passage that you just heard read, and we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So think about this. Finally, this prophecy is coming to pass. Finally, the one that people's ancestors have been talking about, this coming Messiah, this Savior, he's finally here. Finally, this Messiah sent to save is among them. This was the long-awaited king that the people had been waiting for. For imagine the excitement, imagine the celebration here as Jesus comes. And it says that he came powerfully into the city with an army ready to wage war. No. It says that he came to them humbly. Not on a steed of war, but on a slow-moving donkey. The symbol of a king who comes in peace, according to Zechariah. And so it says in verse 6, the disciples went And they did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the ground and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the ground. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What does this act mean? What it means is that the people, they recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as the long-awaited Savior, the long-awaited King. In fact, them shouting Hosanna, what that means is save now. That salvation has come, and we know as a church and as a people that Jesus was sent to save, but not how the people here wanted or expected. 
You see, the message they heard was God will deliver the nation from the oppressor. In this case, they would have been thinking in the people's minds, they would have been thinking about um, Rome and being delivered from Rome. You might not know this, but Jesus' procession into Jerusalem wasn't the only procession into the city on this day. In the year 30 AD, Roman historians record the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, also led a procession of Roman cavalry and centurions into the city of Jerusalem. In his writing the last week, Marcus Borg describes the scene. He says, imagine the spectacle of that entry. From the western side of the city, the opposite side from which Jesus enters, Pontius Pilate leads Roman soldiers on horseback and on foot. Each soldier was clad in leather armor polished to a high gloss. On each centurion's head, hammered helmets gleamed in the bright sunlight. At their sides, sheathed in their scarabands, were swords crafted from the hardest steel. And in their hands, each centurion carried a spear. Or if he was an archer, a bow with a sling of arrows across his back. Drummers beat out the cadence of march, for this was no ordinary entry into Jerusalem. Pilate is the governor of the region, which included not only Judea, but Samaria and Amadea, knew that it was standard practice for the Roman governor of a foreign territory to be in its capital for religious celebrations. It was the beginning of Passover, a Jewish festival that the Romans allowed. However, the Romans must have been aware that this festival celebrated the liberation of the Jews from another empire, the empire of Egypt. So Pilate had to be in Jerusalem. Since Romans had occupied this land by defeating the Jews and deposing of their king about 80 years before, uprisings were always in the air. The last major uprising long before Pilate's time had been after the death of Herod the Great in 4 BC. The uprising started in Sephoris, about five miles from Jesus' boyhood home of Nazareth. Before it was over, the city of Sephoris, the capital of Galilee, and the town of Emmaus had been destroyed by the Roman army. After putting down the rebellion there, the Romans marched on Jerusalem. And after pacifying the city, they crucified over 2,000 Jews who were accused of being a part of the rebellion. The Romans had made their tolerance for rebellion well known. And so on this occasion, Pilate had traveled with a contingent of Rome's finest from his preferred headquarters in Caesarea by the sea to the stuffy, crowded, providential capital of the Jews, Jerusalem. You see, there were two processions that day. And if Pilate's procession was meant to be a show of military might and strength, Jesus' procession showed quite the opposite. A contrast between king and kingdom is what we see here. And although many of the common people, they thought that they sided with Jesus, they did so for the same reason that the Pharisees and others sided with Rome. They thought Jesus could do for them what Rome had done for their rulers. Make their lives easier, deliver them from the oppressive system, under which they lived and worked and turned the table on the Romans. They wanted a king that looked like Pilate. 
but Jesus is very different. You see, when we look at these two different entries into Jerusalem, here's what we see is that Pilate enters on a horse and Jesus enters on a donkey. Pilate enters with a powerful army and Jesus enters with 12 no-name disciples. Pilate enters wanting people to fear him and his power. And yet Jesus is someone that welcomed children. Pilate enters as someone who was known as a swift judge bringing quick justice. And yet Jesus is someone who is gentle and compassionate, full of grace. This is why the people turned on Jesus in less than a week. He didn't fulfill their purpose. And so they moved to another source. They looked for another savior. You see, we're never moving simply from one source or one foundation to nothing. We're always moving to something. And that really dictates our purpose and what we're living for. William Law, a Christian writer, says this, All people desire what they believe will make them happy. If a person is not full of desire for God, you can only conclude that he is engaged with another happiness. The people here, they wanted an earthly kingdom and a headstrong king to go with it. They had their eyes set too low, really only on what they could see in front of them instead of what was above them and beyond them. They failed to see the kingdom that Jesus offered and that this kingdom was far better than anything or any kingdom that the world had to offer. And so their hearts pivoted and their hearts went in that direction. And we all know that where your heart goes, your allegiance ultimately follows. They realized Jesus wasn't going to make their lives easier. In fact, a life with Jesus will be harder in many ways. Maybe you found that to be true. That when you follow Jesus, it brings certain challenges that may have not existed before. Certain friends that you had before, now that you're following Jesus, may not look at you the same. Certain conversations around the dinner table with other family members may not look the same or feel the same. When you follow Jesus, certain relationships that you had prior, they may look different. Or people may even push back on having a relationship with you because you follow Jesus. They realized that following Jesus, it wasn't going to make their lives easier. They found out that Jesus wasn't going to win any popularity contest, that it would require something of them. And this isn't just true of this group. This is, this is true of us too. Just like the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. This is really a temptation for all of us, and it's a temptation for all of our hearts, and this temptation comes day after day after day. And here's the unfortunate reality, is that this temptation to wander away from Jesus, to wander and find another source, another purpose, something else to live for that seems easier or sometimes more fulfilling, is going to be a constant daily temptation. And I believe in our society, a lot of this comes from this idea of the American dream. This feeling that we're entitled to certain things or that 
Our purpose is to really seek after certain things, to have 2.5 kids and this certain house and this certain job and this certain paycheck and and this certain notoriety or this certain title at work and to take these types of vacations and to do these types of things and to be a part of these types of societies. And the list goes on and on and on. This idea that we've been fed of this American dream. And the challenge is that this American dream has become so dangerous because it's also made its way into the church that we've sort of commingled this with what it means to be a Christian, that God should give us these things, that we're somehow entitled to be given these certain things by God. Then we get what we want, when we want, how we want, and we also disengage and we push back when we want or when it's not convenient. And the danger is we lose sight of really what Christianity is all about, that it's not about just getting what we want when we want it, but it's about getting what we could never gain for ourselves. It's about getting the love and the grace and the forgiveness that Jesus and Jesus alone actually offers. You see, there are so many temptations in life every day that will try to give you another purpose, something else to live for, something different and opposite of Jesus. You'll face this tomorrow, even as you get up, even as you turn on the TV, even as you see an ad, even as you have a conversation with a friend or a family member, this pulling of you to pledge your allegiance to somewhere else, that this is where you should invest your time. This is where you should invest your money. This is where you should give your efforts. This is what you should strive for. This is what it looks like to live the best, most meaningful life And we'll find that Jesus is over here. And when we turn around, it's so easy to look back and to see, oh my goodness, we drifted a lot further than we ever thought because we've been striving after something that's not him. We've been striving after a life that he never intended and he never desired for us to have. That Jesus would say, this is what you really need, that it's the the purpose of your life. It's, It's not to live out the American dream, as hard as that might be for all of us to hear, that it's not to put X number of dollars in our bank account, that it's not to have a certain type of house in a certain neighborhood or to have kids who achieve certain academic goals or who who are, are great at sports or the list goes on. This isn't the purpose of your life. The purpose of your life is one that's been given by God, no matter who you are. The purpose of your life is one that's given by a God that knows you, that created you, that knows all of your inward parts. The purpose of your life is ultimately to be a disciple of Jesus, to count the cost, to take up your cross, to lay down your life with humility, no matter what it costs, to follow him and to encourage others to follow him as we humble ourselves and as we attempt to shine a light and be a light, a city on a hill that says, this is living hope. This is why we give up this, these things. This is why we sacrifice. This is why we forgive. This is why we humble ourselves. This is why we serve. This is why we give up our time. This is why we give up our money. This is why we love when it's not easy. This is the purpose that Jesus has given you and has ultimately given our church. And I can't think of a better time in our world, in our country, in our neighborhoods to hold on to this truth and live it out. 
Because right now, the American dream is in shambles. It's fallen through. And through the cloud of lost health, lost jobs, uncertainty, and fear, people are looking for hope. And we have the answer. And it's always been the same. It's Jesus. Look at how this passage wraps up. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so this begs the question that we also need to answer. When you came to Jesus, what kind of king did you expect? What kind of king do you expect now? We have to be careful not to build up an idea of Jesus that isn't based in reality or based in what the the Bible tells us and shows us because there's no quicker way to disappointment when we do that. For some of us, we came to Jesus because we were looking for a friend who would always affirm our decisions and who would tell us we were We were doing good and we wanted sort of a pat on the back friend to come alongside and and just to agree with us. Some of us, we came to Jesus sort of as an ATM, believing that if we just did the right things and followed all the rules, that Jesus would provide health and wealth and a certain number of other things. For some of us, um, we came to Jesus thinking of him sort of as a lucky charm, that it's better to have him and to hold him than not. And so we believe that a relationship with him simply will make life a little bit better, maybe a little bit easier, and it's better with him than without him. And maybe if we're being honest with ourselves, we find ourselves in that place today, or at least leaning in that place. And we need the purpose of Jesus and his kingship to be redefined. If we think God's purpose is to fix all of our problems, we're going to be disappointed. If we feel that his purpose is to give us everything that we want, we'll be disappointed. If we believe God's purpose should be to prevent difficulty in our life, and we know this now to be true, we're going to be quickly disappointed. If we believe that God's purpose is to not ask much of us, not to sacrifice, not to serve, not to forgive, or even love when it's challenging, we're going to be disappointed. But here's the good news, because we need good news. And as we head to Easter, there's no better news than this. That if you want a king who knows you, who knows your past, and who accepts you, who knows your fears and offers comfort, who promises that in the middle of the unknown, the darkness of the valley, the anxieties of our heart, that he's walking with us. A king that is far more powerful than a virus and is in control no matter what comes at us in this life. If you want a king that makes promises that he won't break, A king who offers unconditional love to take your brokenness and make you whole, to take your worst day and make you clean. If you want a king that offers you an eternal family 
where you'll never feel like an outsider or be rejected. We find that in Jesus. As we think about responding today, maybe the most important question isn't what kind of king did you expect, but is Jesus the king that you'll accept? Will you place your life under his lordship? And if it hasn't been there, would you go to him today and confess that? Would we hand over our desires that have maybe been selfish, desires that we know don't align with God's desire for our life? Would we hand those over and instead would we take up his? His desire for us to connect, to serve, to pour ourselves out, even when it's challenging, even when it's hard? Would we hand over our demands that maybe we've replaced on God? I'll follow you if. I'll keep following you if. And instead, would we rest in his care? Would we offer him all of our anxieties that we're feeling today, that we're holding on to today? Our anxieties about today, our anxieties about tomorrow, our anxieties about what moving forward looks like. And will we trust in his goodness? If you want a king that conquers sin and death and who's conquered Satan on your behalf and gives you a helper in the Holy Spirit to walk every day of this life out with you until you walk with him in the next, then expect Jesus. The one who the grave couldn't hold the one that death couldn't defeat, the Alpha and the Omega, the eternal conquering King. Jesus, we thank you today for being that King. We thank you for offering us what we could not do for ourselves. God, we know that there's a temptation to push back, to seek our own desires over your desires, to well up with pride instead of humility. God, would you, would you allow us just to open up our hearts and to hand those things over to you today, whatever that might be, God. That God, if, if we've been resisting in any way, shape or form, following you, allowing you to lead us, God, would today be a day that we confess that and we take up hope and we take up rest and we take up peace and we take up comfort. It's only found Jesus in you. Holy Spirit, would you bring these things to mind? Would you bring these things out that we do need to confess today? And would you allow us to walk in hope and enjoy as people with hope, regardless of what's happening right now in the world, in our country, God, would we be the people of hope? Would we share this hope with those around us? Would we stand firm in the gospel truth that Jesus, you are good, that you are in control, and that we know this because you gave your very life for us. So Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you're enough. And Jesus, would you be the one and the only king that we accept and we follow? We pray all of these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.